0: Hello, everyone. This is Trey Borden, and welcome to this episode of What We Gonna Do. A just seeing your three faces like this is amazing. Like I'm just this is this whole series like might have been for this moment. So thank you very much for participating. Um, so thank you for coming to What We Gonna Do. Um, And this episode, I think, is really important because I think a lot of us who are involved with the arts um, have to kind of navigate a really kind of tricky atmosphere all the time, and especially at some of these institutions that, you know, attract the majority of the attention of the resources. um, They want, I mean, they say they want people like us at the institution, you know, to signal their values, to... Signal what type of artists they want to represent, to kind of talk about their progressiveness. And yet, I think often the result is people feeling very disenfranchised, very disrespected, very exploited. Um, And how can that jive with them having these kind of progressive, inclusive values? And so I think it's really important, especially if we want to continue to lift these institutions up in any kind of meaningful way um, and say that they're the best vehicle to you know, show our community's creativity uh, and kind of brilliance that we're gonna have to call them out and we're gonna have to hold them to a much higher standard than they've been getting away with. Um, and so I, I really am so appreciative that all of you have agreed to do this because it's not easy. All of you have learned in, a, you know, whatever way that it is not easy to be the person who is criticizing either, you know, from as a staff member, as a community member, as a former staff member, um, they make you pay in some ways and so i think it's time for them to realize like what they have at stake when they alienate brilliant black people um who don't give a fuck anymore <laughs> you know and, they, and it's, it's partly on their end is they are responsible for the kind of animus and the willingness for people to speak out because there's a lot of shit to say so that being said, like, I, I feel like I'm gonna do a lot of listening this episode, which is, I'm very happy to do. Um, so why don't we go and uh, everyone, for everyone's benefit, introduce yourself. We can start uh, with Faith, and then go Jova and Taylor.
1: Yes, uh, so my name is Faith McKinney. I am the Community Engagement Coordinator at Croc Art Museum in Sacramento, also independent curator and the founder of the Black Artists Fund.
0: Whoop. Ms. Jova.
2: Oh, sorry. (laughs) I was like, oh, yes, I was. My name is Jova. I'm coming to y'all from Detroit, actually. uh, So big love for the West Coast, but I'm I'm based out of the Midwest and I am an artist and Mm -hmm. currently independent curator. uh, And I was the Suzanne Feld Hilberry curator at the Museum of Contemporary Art Detroit.
3: Awesome. Um, I went to undergrad in Chicago, and I have people oh. out there that was the my name Yeah. <laughs> uh, my name's Taylor Brandon. I am a co-founder of No Neutral Alliance, which is an organization, um, born out of San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. My former employer silencing me via social media, um, but I also do many other things that I haven't really thought about fully, but yes, that's the gist. That's you know, so it's
2: well. at, it's a, I used to work at YBCA before I moved to Detroit, so I, I get the Bay Area vibe for sure. Yep, <laughs> right across the street. Yeah, I'm <laughs> really, really excited about the work y'all have been doing. So thank you, Trey, um, for getting us together.
0: Thank you. My pleasure. (laughs) Um, So I guess a place to begin might be, I mean, each of you seem to be either currently or kind of formally involved with um, a kind of major art institution and kind of trying to hold them accountable. I'll allow you to go into whatever detail you think is appropriate, but I'd like to kind of provide some context as we kind of continue this conversation um, about kind of like what you specifically have been dealing with and kind of what you think that means for kind of this larger conversation. why don't we, why don't we start with Taylor?
3: Yeah. Okay. So I worked at SF MoMA for about a year and three months, and I worked in public relations, but the role is considered communications and PR is my background and funny enough, I had left the museum in March, right? So my last two weeks of work were the first two weeks that shelter in place started here in Oakland and, My original plan to leave was because I was tired of sort of like the discrimination and erasure that I was facing inside of the museum, but also I wanted to explore career opportunities outside of public relations. I was like, no more communications for me. I'm done. And I really wanted to sort of go into more research and curatorial based work. Um, And so one great thing about working at a museum is that it allowed me to explore a lot of different avenues. And I got to see the inner workings. I got to see how an exhibition was built. I got to do my own personalized study of Black contemporary artists that I wouldn't have gotten at school um, but anyways, I was like, I got to go. Cause I'm not passionate about my work and y'all treat me bad and I'm black. So there, something's got to give, so I need to dip. And so like at the end of May, going into June, they had posted on their Instagram, a Glenn Ligon image, and they sort of posted a quote from him referencing that image about protest. And I just was like, it's really funny how, you know, they get to post these things, right, and tokenize these artists, which I've already seen them do. So also a lot of what I said underneath that post, the comment I made, have been comments that I've made before. So everybody there knows that how I'm speaking and what I do is not new. I've been doing this. I've always stood up for myself, especially in that space, because nobody was going to do it for me um but they posted this and i was like well that's not fair because they haven't even made a comment themselves also it just felt like a cop-out it just felt very easy it just felt very performative which i feel like is a theme we're going to get into today but it just felt very performative, and i didn't like it and i was just like i just left here and i saw how y'all treated black people and now you want to talk about protests and not even use your direct voice but use the voice of a black artist so i kind of synthesized everything I just said and put it underneath that post and I named some names because I thought it was important. And I think that was in the whole sort of scheme of all of this. I think that was really, really important. The fact that I had worked there. So I knew who to call out directly. Like I knew how to get them and i got him so my friend I, I i copied, like screenshotted it put it on my story my friend i guess went back to look at it and she's like taylor like your comment's gone and i was like huh and she's like it's gone so i go back the comment is gone none of the comments are there anymore and i worked in communication so i know everybody who's responsible for social you know so it's very it was very personal in a very strange way um sure. And of all the people that they decided to sort of like black out, why me? So I was just kind of like, okay, they deleted this. We'll see what happens. And I was just kind of like, friends were just kind of like blowing that up. And then I talked to somebody who works there and they were like, they're not budging. Like they're they're sticking with their decision to delete your comment. Like they didn't see it as censorship in any way, shape or form, I guess at that moment. Um, and they said the reason was because I had used people's names and that that was a, like a threat to them and their security. But they're all in public facing roles when all these people get hired. Again, I was in PR. They get press releases <laughs> sent right. out about mm-hmm. them being there mm-hmm. and their roles. So you're just being, you know, called out in a way that you don't like. Um, and so I was like, oh, so they're digging their heels in. I was like, okay, like, all right. So I like hit up my friends and I rewrote the message that I had already wrote, but I added more names to it. And I was like, y'all blast this on all of their posts. So, cause I was like, if they're going to disable the comments on this post because I named names and they're going to have to do it for all of their posts. So I was like, let me prove a point. <laughs> like y'all you're not about you're like, your about like, <laughs> This is what I do. This is what I do. I was like, strategy, let's go. So I was like, Okay, if you're going to do it to one, you're going to do it to all. And then that's when I, again, reached out to my PR contacts because I worked in PR. And I was like, hey, allergic. hey, KQED Arts, like editors who I've worked with before and who I have a rapport with, like, just want to make sure the situation is on your radar. And because SF MOMA Union had sort of created their own post about it, so I was able to just copy, um, like, to send that post directly to the journalists inboxes uh, via social media. so I think having that actual post where they really outlined how they deleted my comment and what happened was really helpful. And so at that point, I had blasted everything and they had and then I was like reached out to those journalists and then, Yatunde, who is a part of NOR Collective, shout out to nor Collective. Yatunde was like, yo, like NOR, we are in full support of you. So at this time, SF MoMA had uh, this uh, residency called Museum from Home. And so this residency was all online. And so for a week at a time, different Bay Area collectives, art collectives would kind of like be spotlighted, they would showcase work, they would sort of have like the take over the homepage and stuff on the website. And so NOR Collective was the um, collective in residence that the previous week before all of this happened. Um, But so they reached out to me and they were like, this isn't cool. And I kind of knew some of them already. So they were like, we're in full support of you and we're writing a letter. Like, are you down with that? Like, what's up? And I'm like, yeah. So in like a day and I was like, oh, perfect. I can send this letter as an exclusive to KQED Arts to be included in that article. So that when it drops, like everything kind of drops.
0: I love love, like like, the master class of calling out that we're receiving. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like of all the people they could have fucked with, it's like, Let's fuck with the person who actually knows how to blow a story up. You know? Sloppy <laughs> and stupid, um, and in addition to being racist, but whatever. Go on. Please.
3: That's what's so great about it. Like it's so bad it and egregious, but also so wonderful. So mm-hmm. we got in the Google Doc myself, Yatunde, and Ace. We got in that doc, and it was just magic. Like we barely, we didn't even talk on the phone. It was just like text, and then we were just in the Google Doc, just like. I was revising stuff because they had certain demands that I was like, okay, I worked there so I can speak directly to some of these demands. Like uh, they were saying things like they needed um, like mandatory DEI training, but we had already had a DEI training in November that I knew about. So I was like, no, someone needs to get fired because clearly the DEI training was not enough. Like their racial bias is still extremely clear. And so we like created magic in a day and I sent that over to the editor or the person who was covering the story, Sam at KQED and the next, so it was a Monday and everything dropped on that Monday at around 3 p.m. So first the hyperallergic piece dropped at like three, then we said, well, Nerd Collective sent the letter to SFMOMA leadership. So first article hyperallergic comes out at three, like 3.02 Yatunde pressed send on the letter to leadership. And then at 3, like 10, the KQED article dropped that also had the letter in there. So it was like pure just. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs> yeah, it was just like I felt, I was feeling myself. And then from there, obviously, at that point, before they had issued some like late, like some very just. They kind of issued an apology that didn't really address anything. They were just sort of like, we appreciate they're all comments. That. Yeah. They were like, we appreciate all comments, but we ask that you guys respect like the Instagram guidelines because they're basically trying to say that what I was doing, I got <laughs> considered bullying or harassment, and then how I had my friends spam everything. And I think at that point, they had made the comment back visible again. And then... They we sent all that stuff out to them on Monday. And then that night at 8pm, the director had sent us an email back and was like, Hi, <laughs> like, I thank you guys for not walking away after they had done so much just ridiculous, terrible stuff. And then the next day at noon, because we of course are trying to like strategize and figure out how we're going to respond. But the next day at noon, he called me. And I was like, whoa. And then that's when I was like, oh, I done started something. And that's sort of the main gist of it, the thing I guess that really got the ball rolling. And then at that time, all the other artist collectives who were part of the museum from home, they pulled out in solidarity with us. And then some of those, a lot of those artists, that's how we formed No Neutral Alliance. So. Yeah. And we've cut in that time, um, other yeah. I love it. It's so
0: good. It's so (laughs) good. And
3: this is a matter this happened in about like everything, the formation of the neutral lines, all this stuff happened within like a week and a half period. Like it was quick. Um, And since that time, I think like six or seven, Uh, leadership people have resigned from SF MoMA. I mean, the main person we want out is still there, but that's okay. Um, But I feel like we have gotten a lot of success. And I think we've been able to really galvanize current staff, people outside. There's a group called XSF MoMA who sort of um, form. They were kind of like already in the tops of forming, but I think everything popped off with me and then they really like got it together and started going because to be honest, I've lost, I don't have the energy for to like really work with SFMOMA MoMA specifically anymore. I'm tired. I'm burnt out. And they, in our communications, they don't care. Um, I'm very distrustful for obvious reasons, but they do not care. And I do not have the energy anymore. Like, I do not care. Like, y'all, I, I'm at a point where I'm like, y'all do what you want to do. I've given you everything that I could. Like, we got a revised list. Well, of more than you
0: deserve, also. You know? Yeah. Like,
3: Absolutely.
0: Um, but that's it for now. Well, yeah. that's, that's amazing. And I think this, this brings up a lot of issues that I think we were going to touch upon um, throughout this episode. I mean, because really, they exhaust us. You know, it's like you do all this work probably with, like, a lot of trepidation even while you're doing it because of some larger goal or kind of, like, wanting to change the system. And, and you know, you're, you also recognize you're one of the few Black people in the space. So you got to represent. And that's exhausting as well. And so I think that one of the things I want to touch upon later is, like, how, do you, how does one care for oneself in these institutions? Because it is so much more work than... Then you should have to be putting in just to kind of survive in a system that's supposed to be supportive. Um, yeah. So let's move on to the to the Midwest. Let's talk to Jova about kind of what's going on at MoCAD and uh, kind of how she's viewing things.
2: Yeah, I mean, they're welcome. Um, thank you, and and just to say, it's so amazing to hear because I've seen your stuff on social media, Taylor, and mm-hmm. just to like hear from hear your voice and to like hear you talk through it is just such a you know, sometimes it could feel so isolating doing this work, even though you have your comrades by your side. Yeah. Um, and so just to be a part of this conversation, like I really needed it today. Cause honestly, I'm tired, y'all I'm, I'm tired, um, but we can talk about that later. So sure. basically, um, you know, MoCAD Detroit is an 80% black city and the arts, uh, specifically the arts institutions, such as the DIA, which is going through its own Renaissance right now. Um, The Detroit Institute of Arts and the Museum of Contemporary Art Detroit um, are the two main museums. Like there are other museums, but they're the two largest or like most uh, frequented museums in the city. Um, I should also note that the Charles H. Wright Museum was the first museum of African-American history in the country, which is also in Detroit. Um, And so you have this wealth of blackness this like cultural sort of this diaspora that really runs the art world in the city, but is not reflected in the institutions, specifically the Museum of Contemporary Art Detroit and the the Detroit Institute of Art. And so I first started at MOCAD um, three years ago, I think almost two years ago, I can't remember. Um, And I was a Ford Foundation curatorial fellow And so at the time, MoCAD had no senior curator because Jens Hoffman, who was the senior curator who was at large, was accused of sexual harassment. Um, And so he worked at the Jewish Museum in New York City and at MoCAD and he resigned. Um, I was offered my job the day that this all came out. And I said, you know, even though this is really fishy, this is like not great, I had just come from the Bay, Um, I was like, I'm still going to work here because I knew that MoCAD up until that point had very little, there was one black curator there, um, who was a visual arts curator, not a public programs curator, visual arts, um, public programs is largely happens to often be black uh, led at, as far as I've seen, although not at MoCAD. Um, And so I was like, let me just do this. And I was warned. Community members warned me, former colleagues warned me. They were just like, you really are gonna have to really be prepared for working here. Um, Alicia Bore Reader, who was as of, I think last week, Monday fired from her position was in leadership. And she was, she is a uh, white woman from Michigan. Um, and one of our first conversations, uh, she was telling me how she grew up in Hamtramck, which is a predominantly Bengali, uh, neighborhood or city within the city of Detroit and how her and her Polish family had to move because immigrants took over. And I was like, this is a little bit of a yikes, but my ambition, you know, I'm a Capricorn Aries Mars. I was like, I want to be in there. I want to be a disruptor. I want to re-engage community members who have been left out in this museum. Uh, MOCAD is also a non-collecting museum, which means we have the opportunity to be super radical um, because that that legacy doesn't exist within the institution. And so I worked there and did my best to manage the devastating effects of white settler colonialism on my mental psyche and in the community. You know, oftentimes Black artists, non-Black people of color, were paid less for speaking engagements or exhibitions than white artists. Uh, I have been in rooms uh, with leadership threatening to ruin an artist's career if they didn't do what the institution wanted them to do. really poorly, like just like blatant verbal abuse of colleagues, including myself. Um, And so, but I wanted to stay. And Larry Osimensa, is another black curator, uh, came in and replaced Jens Hoffman as a senior curator and departed from MOCAD about eight months after he started. And so I was promoted. And we had another black curator come in as a territorial fellow, Matio Keeling, who is actually from L.A. And I think you might know him, Trey. Um, and so he came in and then, you know, we're, I was doing big things, met with the board. Um, the, the board meeting I went to was super interesting. We have 35, MoCat has 35 board members, only six board members showed up. A lot of the board lives outside of detroit so they live in the suburbs of detroit for the most part which is a very affluent areas um some of the most wealthy people in the country live right outside detroit um and so that's where a lot of our board members, mocads board members are from and so everything was tip top shape had a curatorial vision and then covid hit and you know covid unpacked so much so quickly, especially I think labor rights and the anti-blackness that is inherent in the museum structure. And so uh, everybody was, except for six people was laid off, were laid off, including myself. And I should also say the executive director when I was laid off promoted herself to senior curator and took the senior out of the title that I was given um, giving herself a raise in stature and also in, um, paycheck. And so, uh, when the director and the, with the board's, uh, approval laid everybody off, she, um, said that we should treat our paychecks as paychecks from most, from the paycheck we would get from the government for unemployment would be treated as paychecks for MoCAD. So we should keep working because if we didn't keep working on our projects, then that would reflect poorly in our performance reviews and we might lose our jobs. Now, mind you, during this time, my family, I'm originally from the East coast and my family was going through a lot with COVID, um, just like a lot of loss, a lot of uh, family illness. And I was like, you know, I was laid off. So as a courtesy, I told, the director, I was going to be on the East Coast for a little while, and I wouldn't be available for two days because I needed to prioritize my family's health and safety. And she was like, well, because the P the PPE, the PPE, whatever the loan, the payment protection yeah. loan came through. So she was trying to rehire folks. And I was just like, she was like, well, can you be back in Detroit by Friday? And I was like, I, it is Wednesday. I just drove 12 hours to the East coast. No, I will not be back on Friday. I'm laid off. Like, what do you, like, I told you where I was as a courtesy. And this sort of opened a can of worms. Um, we had an all staff meeting, which she like yelled at everybody just went off. She yelled at me for two hours after because I didn't have her back. Um, and I wasn't encouraging people to work. Um, and it just spiraled. And then we had a few other conversations, some were really horrible, some were fine. And then it got to the point where she was like, you know, Drova, now is a really good time for you to resign. I really worry. If you don't resign now, it'll sour our relationship. And so I did not technically resign; I declined to return. Um, and through my declining to return, you know, Maceo also left. So MoCat had lost three black curators within the six months time span. Um, and so uh, we had a curatorial fellow who is a Mexican Latinx identified person um, who put up Conrad, Conrad and Gear show and was resigning. And she, there's a lot of fear that our the director instilled in folks. And so to get current staff to say, I was treated so poorly was nearly impossible. And so she was about to leave. And I was like, you know, I am gonna write a letter from former staff and we're gonna support this because former staff, everybody who has left MOCAD has largely left because of this person. And so sent that email to like five people and then it turned into 30. And then it turned into 70. And so, MOCAD Resistance uh, is a network of 70 former employees, uh, contractors, and actually, Teen Council. Teen Council, the teen programs have had a really large stake in the movement, which has been really incredible. Um, again, largely black and brown youth, uh, local youth who are in that program. And so, really trying to advocate for five specific demands, including the removal of Alicia Barrier Reader as director, which that demand was one. Uh, It just so happened that there was an indigenous collective called the New Red Order who was opening a show when all of this happened. And they refused to do the show without Alicia accepting a land agreement, a land acknowledgement agreement that was supposed to be sustained forevermore, and she agreed to it as a part of their contract for the show as a verbal agreement. Um, and so they found out everything that's happened and they their show is installed. It's amazing. And they're like, we are not opening the show until all the agreements are met. So Mocad resistance has really become an alliance between presenting artists. Conrad, um, I don't think he made a statement. Uh, But Peter Williams made a statement, New Red Order made a statement, and Conrad is definitely standing in solidarity. And so the artists, the staff, and the current staff there wrote their own letter, sort of also asking for the demands to be met. Um, And the demands include everything from 4A Reader's removal, which we won, to teen and employee representation on the board, a diversification of the board of trustees, parental leave, um, and a, uh, shoot, I forgot, the, and the red orders, all of their stuff, and uh, prioritization of rehiring of any employees who resigned or were, la- were laid off due to COVID. And so, that all the work that has happened has been archived on a website which we we have called moCADresistance.com. And it's super interesting because uh, I think people believe that moCAD resistance is like just one person when really it is like a network. And 300 over 300 local community members signed a letter petition because the way moCAD operates was a public secret. And like the things I went through the things every black curator, curator of color, uh, non-black person of color went through was really just like out there and people actively not wanting to recognize MOCAD and not work with MOCAD. And the thing about MOCAD is that in its mission, it's geared towards community and local community, which is not often in institutional. the institutional mission, right? Like this is something that is specific. It's not in the DIA's mission to reflect Detroit. It is at MoCAD's mission to reflect Detroit. So I think that there has been so much support. The archive is like, it's there, folks should check it out because I really think it is a model for how to advocate for institutional change. Um, But also it's like, it's been hell and back and it's really exhausting. I've been terrified about my future and my career and my family and what's gonna happen after this and how do I sustain myself? How do I live? even though there's been these wins, it's like, you're also put into this position of like, so where like so much is relying on you. And I think the emphasis of MOCAD resistance right now, although I am one of the people who's been super impacted, is that like, it is all of us or none, you know, like we are all here. So that's that's where we're at. And the good news is that the executive director is no longer in that position.
0: In- incredible work, Jova. Um, and I mean, just so many parts of that, uh, first of all, it sounds like a, like several people's full-time jobs to even mount this effective of a resistance to this institution, and that's what's so crazy. It's like, not only are you having to like, also, let's not forget, this is in the context of a pandemic that has oh, like grown yeah. so many things into disarray and pressure and stress. So just surviving in that context is a lot, let alone mounting a resistance, having to confront this racist institution that you've actually been personally mistreated by. And that's the thing. It's like triggering and traumatic. And as much as it's beautiful because people have solidarity and there are so many people who have been treated this way who are so grateful for the Mm -hmm. opportunity to kind of make it change. It's just, it's so, it's depleting. You know, I'm depleted even hearing it as much as I'm happy to hear it. You know, so... Big I mean, it's also
2: seat. tricky because it's like you have lawyers involved you have like all these like and I'm not sure I'm, I'm sure y'all can relate to this just like who do you trust who do you not trust what's like the next move and and really feeling that like you know the legacy of museums started with slavery and like in in capturement and like like the gross, I think the grossest thing about working at a museum is knowing you're tokenizing your own people and not wanting to, but also wanting to bring people to the table. So it's also, I think my tired is a reckoning with how I've enabled this to happen. Mm. And so it's not just like, you know, I'm trying to like, now I'm advocating for change. You know, the Detroit is a labor movement city. Black folks have always been laborers. So like, it's like, how do I reconcile that I have been impacted and that I think what the pandemic opened up was that it's actually my life matters more than this and I'm not gonna be doing this shit anymore.
0: Absolutely. It's yeah. been a very clarifying time in that sense. You're like, you know what I'm not gonna do? This bullshit. Yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so thank you, COVID, for that yeah. at the very least. Yeah. Um and then um yeah let's and then Faith kind of explain what your current context is and then we can really get into kind of some of these root issues.
1: Yeah, definitely. Also, uh, let
0: me just say how grateful I am that you guys are providing space to talk about this. I know it must not be easy. It isn't easy.
3: It's actually so helpful. It's not easy, but it's, it's just good. it feels good. Like, I don't know. It feels good.
0: Yeah. I'm glad.
3: Yeah.
1: So, yeah, so, okay. So I grew up in Sacramento, right? Sacramento's home for me. So I grew up with Crocker Art Museum as our only art institution in the city. So, you know, second grade was like my first field trip to this museum. Um, so I, it has a place in my heart. So last year, uh, February 2019, I received an education fellow position. Um, and I was excited, I already knew. It. I was like, okay, I'm gonna go in here, I'm gonna get a permanent position. And within like six months, I was promoted to the community engagement coordinator. So I was really excited. I was like, okay, I'm gonna do all these changes. There's all these things that we need to do because this museum has been problematic. I, I think I've realized it was problematic in second grade. You know? <laughs> um, But I, so the first thing that I did was, um, uh, I went to uh, a training at Cultural Connections, shout out to the Bay um, for hosting these Cultural Connections where they introduced me to the Mass Action Toolkit, which is a museum as site for social action at a Minneapolis Institute of Art. So our museum wasn't doing anything about, um, anything with mass, we weren't talking about it. So I brought it back to the museum and I um, engaged like 12 people from different departments, every department in the museum. And we started having these conversations. I mean, literally at lunch, it was our lunch meeting, we'd bring our lunch into the room and start having these conversations. This was November, 2019. So fast forward to um, George Floyd and all the protests that were happening in Sacramento. So for that first week when the, the, you know, every city in the the country, in the world was in flames. And I I reached out to one of our uh, senior staff and I said, you know, we really need to talk about what we're going to say. You know, people in our community literally are down the street you know, protesting and burning shit down. Like, what are we going to say? One, I'm the community engagement coordinator, so I need to make sure that, you know, we're we're engaging the community in these conversations. Um, so I didn't hear anything back. And on the Monday before, so you all remember the, the Tuesday, all those black, all the black posts, the squares were coming out. So Monday before that, we posted a gray photo of all photos, right? Because I'm always like, you know, museums are not uh, neutral. And... You post a great photo and I just lost it. One, because I was embarrassed. You know, like people were like, okay, Faith, you have this role in the, in the institution, like what is going on? And from there it just spiraled. And it, thinking back to like just the mass action work, we were like catapulted, like no one really paid attention to the work that we were doing until this happened. And then we were catapulted, like create a DEI statement. You know, what are we gonna do? Like everyone's looking at us. And that's where I got exhausted because as the one Black woman, like, I'm not about to do all this work. You know, I'm not about to do all this work for this very problematic institution that didn't prioritize this in the first place. Um, so that's where we're at. We have a lot of stuff, again, like I said, I'm still employed with the museum, but there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. Shout out to the to the to to my, my colleagues that are really, I mean, literally white women stepping in front and was like, we got you, Faith, you know, we're gonna go ahead and lead this charge which was, you know, I look at naps as, as you know, as, as um, a political statement and I was taking my naps. So I was like, you guys go ahead and handle this. Like, I need <laughs> my nap. I'm not about to do this, um, but we're still working. You know, obviously it's important to me to change this museum. I always think about like my seven year old niece, you know, like she, she loves this museum, like, and she's going to hopefully work here one day. I have to do this work for her. Although I'm tired, I'm annoyed, I'm angry but it's important work and I don't want to stop. Um, But like you all said, the shit is is draining. Um, But here we are, you know?
0: Yeah, and I think that it's so, it's, it's, it's this dichotomy of like, I have this access, so I need to like lean into this work as much as I can. But you do come to a point where you're like, am I supporting a system or institution that is ultimately going to be racist and, and and kind of demean and disrespect and disenfranchise Black people, no matter what iteration of this okay. museum ever exists. You know, and I think that, you know, it's like, I remember when I met Jova, I was visiting a friend of mine, Jessa, at Cranbrook, where they were at MFA program. And I just remember how white it was and like, you know, how Cranbrook had like never even had so many Black students as when they were there. And you're kind of like... I know it's important to get this MFA and like it's important to be the first and do all these things, but you're also like, I I I am so exhausted that it it, it might even impact my actual health. Right. Oh. You know? And I think that that uh, is so dangerous right now is that like, you know, we are the most impacted community by this pandemic from a health perspective. And we're also the most impacted, you know, in this racial reckoning um that's very vital as well. And How do you kind of take care of yourself in a system that is like basically created to destroy you, you know, and kind of like what Jova said, I think is really interesting about kind of like, how am I implicated in this? You know, Um, I think a lot of us in the art world are thinking about like, is it important for us to infiltrate these institutions and change them? Or is it more important to say, fuck these institutions and let's just do other stuff? Cause that's never going to be what it ought to be. Cause it's like, there's never, you can't make, it's like America. It's like, is America going to be not racist? We literally slaves built this country and we can't even acknowledge that, you know? So how many lifetimes do I have in me? Only one. So how am I using that? Um, that's something I think a lot of us are kind of grappling with. Um, I guess who wants to speak on <clears throat> like uh what is the potential of these museums? Like, what is the best case scenario for any of these institutions?
3: Whew, I don't know. I feel like I first wanna just acknowledge the points that Jova and Fink made because I've been taking notes and just like, yes, yes, yes. But I would say that um, I love, for MOCAD, the land agreement, because I think that's something some members of No Neutral Alliance have been talking about. Like if, right, what is the future for museums if we're going to continue to work with museums, right? Because I'm kind of, I'm like, abolish them, burn them down. Um, <laughs> but so, but that okay, we have them and they're here and they're going to be here. So things like land agreements, are really important like museums okay now is the time to move past the performance performativity of it all like what are you doing i think like in the immediate now uh, things that like sf moment employees are kind of like working towards right now is hazard pay for front of like the front, front, like front of house staff, for the people who are working visitor engagement and experience, for the people who are working operations, for the people who have to live when the museum reopens during a pandemic still, are going to have to be communicating and working with the public, right? Like, like that's one of the ways that I acknowledge myself. Like, I was on the 10th floor. Like, I was removed. Like, I made the choice to go to the galleries if I wanted to go to the galleries. And p- there's people who are in the museum store who are, you know, you're just inter- interacting with people and they don't even have a solid plan for them to have hazard pay. So I feel like it's meeting the basic needs. Like, uh, to Jova's point about it being sort of like about labor, about workers first. What are their most basic needs? I live in the Bay. Can people afford to live off their salaries? Like very, very basic needs of people. And I think it even when even when you talk about like tokenization of artists, I feel like I've been in a difficult place myself, sort of thinking about artists and their roles in sort of all of this, whether they're black, white or whatever, because I think about, um, there's a lot of artists who don't mind being tokenized. There's a lot of artists who, are a little bit complacent and are not willing to say, I'm not going to show my work here, or they're not going to say like, my work has to be shown here for like these, this is what needs to happen if you want my work here. Now they probably feel this way because there's fear associated with that. Their career could be jeopardized if they're working with a certain curator who could potentially catapult them to the next level. But how are we making ourselves uncomfortable in this? And I feel like honestly, when it comes down to it, it's. The artists have so much influence, and I think they have more influence than they realize that they do, especially if they've made it to a point to really be working with museums. Because um, we work for the artists, right? Like inside, like the artist comes, everything's set out. Okay, we're working for them. What do they need? How could we compromise to make sure that they're getting their fullest vision met? So I think that there's some, I've been really going back and forth with myself and just having that difficult conversation, like what is the role of the artist while understanding that artists are also discriminated against, but like some artists do not mind being tokenized. And that is a whole other thing in itself. And I think that a lot of more white artists, how Faith was talking about how white women coworkers were like, Faith, like go nap, we got this right now. White artists need to be doing the same thing. White artists need to be taking those leaps and those steps. Like, white artists who uh, basically, because you know how, like, I was talking about, like, the sort of relationship dynamic where it might be a Black artist who's like, I got to get in good with this curator. The curators are trying to get in good with certain artists. So I think that to that point, white artists really need to step it up. But I would also say, too, in terms of, like, faith to your point about, And now, all of a sudden, the museum is like, oh, yes, like, we need this, we need that. There's a sense of urgency that they have now that's so frustrating and exhausting because we've been doing this and we've been talking about this and this has been our lived experience. Like, you weren't listening, but when I was bringing up race and DEI, yeah. Uh, every single meeting anytime we met publicly because I wanted to put the pressure on y'all weren't even We all weren't worried about it then but now that your job is in jeopardy and the press is involved now you want to like try to act right but there's now this level of urgency of like we're gonna have this done by December like no to Trey's point right these things cannot change overnight it, it takes a lot of time and so they're not even giving people who are doing this work, the space to even fill out this moment for ourselves to really like dig into it. Joba was talking about how exhausting it is because every time there's a mover for things to happen, like there are these huge victories, but we don't talk about like how many tears, how much, how angry we get, how the little emails back and forth, maybe if you're communicating with people within the museum from like higher up, like they're rude, they're disrespectful, and it's tiring. And then, where it's kind of like some art of war type shit, like where every anytime anything happens, we gotta like come back together and be like, okay, y'all, like what's our next move? If we're no neutral alliance, we always tell ourselves, like, stick to our plan because we like create this whole plan, and then the museum will do some shisty shit. Like, they've done a lot of Ugh, just gross stuff and then we're like all right child like let's not be reactionary like we have a plan let's stick to our plan so we're constantly Art. trying to like <laughs> discipline ourselves and stick to our plan and do what we have right. because it works right and it was created when we were of sound mind and really just galvanized together so we can't let these little tips like throw us off but yeah <laughs> i mean i
2: have just a, a comment and then a question for faith actually because the something that you bring up is um making me think about something. So I think what you're talking about with like artists, you know, I'm also an artist and it's really, really hard when you've been so incredibly, literally the way art school or like non-formal education, the way the art world functions is so that you aspire to be this thing. And to get to this level where you're no longer emerging, where you're established, and you have all these shows and everything, you have to basically jump through white hoops. And so even with like, I think what we're seeing right now with artists being in solidarity is like a decolonization moment where it's like really checking oneself on like what are the ways that elitism has impacted the art world and how that elitism there's no longer need for it or like that's over, you know, where it's 2020, we're done. Um, Because even like the notion of collecting or like keeping, like it's that the language of this all is so rooted in slavery that it's like, even that, you know, I I have this work up and I'm just like, Oh, the importance of collectors. But I'm just like, can we have another word? Like patrons that like patron of the arts or like something that's less like owning. right? Right. I never want to not to feel like somebody else owns me and in my intellectual property and my creative property is me. So that's like just one thing that that comment made me think about. But also thinking about faith position specifically as like being a part of the public uh, programming community engagement sphere, which is actually relatively new to museums in terms of the history of museums, right? There was always visitor services or tours, maybe kids classes, but like, I think there's a lot. And I don't know how far you can go with this faith, but I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about like, your position and you know, the position I think inherently exists to engage diverse communities. So how do you balance this like, mandate to engage while like that's like largely like grant funded right because that art world we're still in a capitalist society as much as we don't want to be like how do you grapple with this i don't know what my question is exactly but i think just this paradigm shift in terms of like the current world that we live in where it's like okay no more tokenization no more grant funded this is for black people and like right. this paradigm shifts how do you deal with that while also, like, maintaining, uh, maintaining authenticity in the work?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Girl, plenty of times I've gone home, like, <laughs> I am a token. Like, I am yeah. being tokenized. One, because my program is grant-funded. And that's one of my, you know, I'm always, and every all staff like, are we going to make this program part of the museum? You know, mm. we have all of this, you know, we have all these collectors and these auctions, you know, benefiting programs in the museum, but they're not you know, we're not, we're still grant funded programs, So literally like we're up in the air, you know, what, how are we gonna find this funding? And writing grants when I, you know, should be, you know, out in the community or bringing the community back into the museum. It's funny when you say community engagement, it's normally go out into the community and I struggle with the relevancy of our museum. You know, I'm telling mm-hmm. the community, like, come to the museum, and then you get there, and there's like, you know, one can day Wiley, you know, like, <laughs> how can I, you know, and that's and and that's, you know, it's what you said, Joe, like, how am I implicated in this? And and I think about those things all the time, like, one because I was really active in the community before Crocker, so you know, you have to imagine, like, you know, I was I was I was selected for this position because there was some access that I had that the museum did not have, um, and you know, that feeling of being used really hurts, you know, like you're a token ultimately um yeah it's hard girl i struggle every day i mean
2: it's (laughs) also like this thing where it feels like you know my background is also in community organizing so how i shifted from community organizing in to like a museum life. And like, now I'm back to organizing for free, like, they really should pay mocap resistance, like a salary, they should like pay each of us more for this work, because damn, we can do it for free, we are gonna help them out, they're gonna be more <coughs> equitable. But I think to like Trey's question, like, do we blow it up? Do we like, keep it? Like, how do you do that? I the truth is, I don't actually know, because I feel like, you know, there are black galleries, there's like black run like owned museums, and it's still like replicating systems of white supremacy. <clears throat> Same so, structures. Right. Well, and I think this I'm was, not saying it now.
1: Go ahead. Um, Great <coughs> question. So, at a time when we're removing racist statues, you know, all over the country, will we consider dismantling these anti black institutions? And I feel like you, Taylor, now I'm like, burn it down. I used to not, you know, because I love museums, and I'm just like, burn it down. But I do think the open letter framework helps we're exposing these institutions and the leaders that are unfit to run them um right i tell everyone these are communal institutions this is the community and what i'm struggling with because a lot of our stuff is still internal like we haven't gone public and i feel like once we go pu- public you know our leadership can no longer drag their feet. They have to say, okay, we have to move because our our community, which is strange, right? You know, you have your staff saying, do this, do this before it gets to the community. And then, you know, you release open letter and it's like, now you have no, you know, now the community is at your door saying, what exactly are you doing?
2: Well, I think that's also like something that this time has revealed, right? Like how I said, like all of these issues have existed at MOCAD since when it was born. And then, which is not old, it's like pretty young museum, actually. It's only like, I think, 12 or 15 years old. And then Alicia was in charge for seven years. And from year one, there were issues. And it's just like, you know, you have, you have this space, and you have so much potential. And we're all so silent, as I said, public secret, like, you know, and then once the community, I guess I just hope museums can be a space where community realizes that they can assert their power. I think that's that's something that I want because it's like, you know, now that the community is out here and we're putting stuff on blast and saving every single receipt, like all the receipts you can imagine. It's just like this place actually like museums, I do think have potential to be go back to the hands or go to the hands of the community, which it was never for in the first place. Um, and so I think that is the potential in this moment, like, is, like, if a community to, like, stand up. And I think COVID has opened the door for, like, folks to realize, like, why there is no point in living in fear if we all are going to die. Like,
3: <laughs> there's no point. <laughs> Yo, I was, like, <clears throat> to that point, even about, like, now is the time, right, to say something, or even sort of being in fear. I feel like there have been so many employees from the museum who are always like taylor you thank you like i could never say what you said in front of these board members or in front of these people and i guess sometimes for me i'm like i know no other way like i can't it's like a fire inside me that burns that's like if i don't do this i'm going to go like nuts and I feel like, right to your point, like, we're all gonna, like, it's, it's a pandemic, it's COVID. I was talking to some employees because I was trying to convince them to strike. I'm like, y'all wanna be in solidarity with me? Y'all wanna help out? Y'all need to mass log out of everything. Shut it down, like, shut it down. Like, that's the only way that you're, like, it has to be these, like, really, sort of radical takes in order for things to happen. But I was telling them, like, listen, you're probably gonna get laid off anyways. <laughs> so you right. might as well, you might yeah. as well. Like what, right. at this point, what do you have to lose? Especially white people, right? Who are now like, who are finally stepping up. Like there are some people who have been like, Taylor, I realized that I should have been more supportive of you while you were working at the museum when you spoke up in all of these meetings and I should have like used myself and all this stuff. I'm like, okay thank you. It's a little bit too late for that. Um, But right now, what you could do is actually do that. And people are still extremely fearful. And it feels um, sometimes people kind of want to like link up and work with me because I'm so visible and so public. And that gets frustrating because I'm like, okay, but like, are you willing to put yourself out there in the same way that I have? Because you can't just ride on the work that I've done when I put so much stuff at stake and at risk. You know, like, not to say that obviously it's a measure and I kind of like can appreciate some people for what they need to do, but on some, sometimes it can be, it can feel like a little bit insulting because I'm like, okay, and especially if you're non black, I'm like, yo, what's good?
0: <laughs> I mean, thing I think
3: I- the big- Just
2: the thing about like this this conversation, all these movements is like it takes a black woman to be like, don't be afraid. I was just gonna. There you go. (laughs) Because these white people, like we had, y'all could have been doing this for a long time. Like your fear is so much. You know, you have so much less to lose, and you're still so afraid.
1: I tell people all the time, museums are the bastions of racist, sexist, colonist and capitalist thinking. And it's strange. I've been saying it. And then now it's like, okay. And I truly think I work with a lot of people, staff and leaders that just lack the critical consideration, you know, like what the contributions, you know, how these inequities are exist and how they're created inside the institution. It's wild.
3: (laughs) Yeah. That was interesting for me to realize when I first started working in museums and I was like, yo, like white curators really just don't think about certain things, like certain things related to just the history of the United States and the world and just colonialism and racism and they'll present these exhibitions and in my head you know these questions start popping up like okay so they're going to address this they're going to talk about that because obviously if you've been doing this studying this thing for 10 years this is your life's work at this point you would have found all of the sort of like holes and things and you know you would have looked under all the rocks and done all of that like right like really academic like just thorough work and I'm so surprised that they don't even think about it and then the, the exhibition is three months out and they're like, why is everybody talking to me about race? I'm like, girl, you've been doing this for 10 years and that didn't cross your mind?
0: <laughs> well, it's like the blind spots are there for a reason, right? Cause if you start to like pull the thread, like all this shit comes into question, you know? And I do think it's worth reiterating <clears throat> that you're three black women. And I mean, you are you have been very visible in your institutions and i don 't know why that is, but i I do think it 's unfortunate that it does seem to fall on the people that you know have to deal with not only all of the racism but all of the misogyny you know like this intersection of this, and yet you know you 're the ones who are kind of catapulting these movements um, i I think it's i don 't know i don 't know what it says about our culture in general that like it's it 's got to be a black woman to kind of like do the heavy lifting and kind of have the moral authority in some ways but it's, uh, it, it can't continue like this, I don't think. Like, it has to be across races, it has to be across gender. Because um, I think, at, you know, these white people like, but the, the thing about like why this will change, like how can racism change, is you have to figure out how to communicate to white people that you lose in this system ultimately. You know, like anything that's based totally on exploitation, like it can't feel great for anyone. I mean, obviously you have material benefits, but like this is toxic. Like we're in the same toxic stew. We all end up stinking of it, you know? And so I think that the more we can communicate to these institutions that like y'all are not doing what you say you want to do. Like this curator you're describing, Taylor, who's like thinking this is her life's work and it's a slipshod, like flimsy ass shit. It's like you need to do better because it would be better. You know, it would be more critical. It would be more relevant. Um, and that's the thing I think that really, it's like all of these institutions in this pandemic and like, we haven't even talked about the fact that we're about to hurdle into a complete economic collapse, you know, especially for black and brown communities. It's like, who gives a fuck about the Met when no one has a job, unless the Met is actually able to shift into something that is meeting the needs of a community. You know, it's like, you know, there was an article about the Underground Museum and how they have farmers markets and they do all these things that like don't necessarily have anything to do with art. But they're like, this is what our community needs us to be. We won't have an exhibition if people are starving. We just need to feed these people. And like, I think that museums often think they're like above practical considerations of a community because this is about art. It's like, I don't give a fuck about your landscapes right now. You know, that should not be prioritized over a starving black child living three blocks away from this museum. Um, and I think that is what I need to see from them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's like, uh, before, I know we are kind of closing. Um, I wanna talk about the movements you guys have begun. So Faith, I mean, I've tried not to chime in too much with Faith, because obviously she still works at this museum. I'm from Sacramento. My mother was the first black curator of the, or not curator, docent of the museum. Um, And I have my own very public visible issues with the Crocker. And I just want to commend Faith for sticking in there because I know how hard it is. um, And I know what it's like. I mean, I, I can't imagine what it's like to be this black face that the museum trots out every time they want some credit for something when I know how poorly they've treated you and people like you. And there's a legacy of that at the museum and all the museums you guys have worked at. So, legacy. You know, better, better you than me, because I don't think I could do it, honestly. <laughs> um, I know I couldn't. <laughs> but I want to talk about the Black Artists Fund and kind of like what is the future of these movements that you've built in, uh, in opposition to these institutions that might end up being much more fulfilling and productive than the institutions themselves? So let's start with Black Artists Fund.
1: Yeah, so um, I created Black Artist Fund as a response to the very problematic and inequitable funding like from grant giving institutions to Black artists specifically looking at my city um, in Sacramento. So I no longer subscribe to the can we sit here too, you know, I got tired of asking for a seat at their table. And with the support of four other amazing Black women here in Sacramento, we decided to create our own grant giving institution, um, which I say FUBU, right, <laughs> you know, for us, by us. Um, <laughs> It's important because I think we as Black people and non-Black people of color have the power and knowledge to create our own institutions. You know, like within less than a month, we raised thirty thousand um, dollars and we funded forty-one artists, sixteen thousand in the first round. We're preparing for a second round to distribute another sixteen thousand and preparing for an exhibition in September to center these artists. It was—I wasn't going to just wait or say, you know, like we want the DAI, like make, you know, like why can't you give us some money? I'm like, no we're going to raise our own money and give it to black people and And unapologetically you know this is for for us it's by us
0: and i think that you know one of the things that i see people leaning into and like it's if we don't know how long it's going to last like there's a lot of white guilt money there's a Mm -hmm. lot of money that is like needing to be kind of directed from like a corporate standpoint as well Mm -hmm. it's like you know black artists fund should approach every big company in sacramento and say match Right. You know? I want all y'all matching up to $10,000, and I want you featuring this art in your lobbies, yeah. you know? I mean, if we ever go back to work. <laughs> um, you know, and I think that this is a really important moment to say, like, all right, you guys want to actually, you say you care about Black people? You say you care about Black artists? Give us this fucking money. Right. You know? And I think that asking for that unapologetically, and and not just ask, I mean, I think it's a it's a different position for a lot of us to start demanding things that sound outrageous, but it's like, Ask for tons of money, you know, because we're so used to scraps that like a feast seems like unimaginable, you know, but like that I think is what we need to demand because it's been, we've been deprived of it forever, you know. So I just, I'm so supportive of that effort. And I think it's been amazing to even talk to the black artists in LA who I know who have, you know, gotten some of your funding. They're like, I can't believe that this is just now happening. You know, like, how could it wait till 2020 until something like this exists that we can manage? And I think it's opening people's eyes to, we could actually do a lot more if we stop exhausting ourselves in this fucked up cycle of racism and kind of retribution and then more racism. Um, And just imagine you guys directed all of that effort into something that, like, didn't even care about the museum. You know, it it boggles the mind to think about, like, what potentially uh, could be possible. And so... um, Jova, so kind of what is next for MoCAD resistance?
2: Um, You know, we still have four more demands. And so I think really focusing in on those demands, um, you know, I don't think, I think that again, MoCAD is in a very odd position where because it's non-collecting, it has this potential to like actually live up to what it wants to do. And I don't think many museums can do that. And I think, you know, Yerba Buena, say what you will about it. But it is a really epic place for like a new model of non-collecting, you know? And I think that the one thing that I really appreciate about the Bay Area specifically, um, and some of the lessons I learned in the Bay was like how you really can have this overlap between the arts and social justice and it not be just called social practice. It's like response. And so I hope that midwest and the east coast also can look at what's happening in the bay and can like think about the uniqueness of detroit while we're also looking at this other kind of landscape um i hope that mocad becomes a detroit-led institution it is not right now um i hope that it becomes a black-led institution it is not right now uh i hope that Mocad takes the hard ass work (laughs) that we have done and really not only course corrects, but like starts from the ground up. Um, and I, my hope for all of us is that folks start waking up to see how like the labor movement and anti, like the anti-black racism are so intertwined and like really, really invest in our communities, but also like really think about the economic uh, and a redistribution of wealth that centers us first and not worries about the other. So that's what I mean, MOCAD was, it's like every day is a new thing. I think uh-huh. there's some meetings with foundations specifically coming up to like, you know, Ford Foundation funded, gave like $700,000 to MOCAD in the past couple years. That's a lot of money and there's no accountability. Like, you know, foundations, like, great, you have a lot of money. Where are your systems for accountability? So we'll see. Well,
0: that's great. Um, and I look forward to seeing kind of like when those last four demands are met and kind of um, just congratulating you on your hard, yeah. hard, hard work, exhausting yeah. work. Yeah. And I hope but that we know this is like
2: you- years in the making. Like it's not just sure. like the demands are met. It's like this is like the reckoning. And, you know, COVID, I think, is going to last for the next year. So I'm like, okay, let's take the year. Take a year off, make some changes. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. I mean, this is a moment of stillness and kind of, like, reflection that should result in difficult but, like, systematic shifts. Um, Because if not now, when? If we can't use this disruption to fundamentally look at what we're doing and how we're doing things and change things that we never thought were even on the table to think of changing, then I I, I truly believe it will never happen. So now is the time to do all of this work. Um, And lastly, Taylor.
3: Yeah. So I feel like no neutral alliance um, is really in a place right now where we have to rethink. I think the beautiful thing about No Neutral Alliance and a lot of these sort of alliances and groups and networks that are forming is that they're very experimental, because I feel like there's some really big questions that we're trying to answer right now or even think about. And in order to think about these things, we just need a lot of time and space. Like, we need a lot of time to simply just, like, through things. We were in communication with the museum director and certain people about potentially having a meeting and at first they were completely disrespectful to us, told us that our work was not intellectual property. I made a point that they needed to pay us very early on in our communication and so they came back to us um, like a couple of weeks ago and they basically said that they are willing to pay us a very small fee, $250 for four meetings, which is not a lot of money and they wanted to meet in person and they wanted to meet in person mid-july and of course we were like at first we were like yeah and then we talked to our group and they were like hell no y'all it's a pandemic we're like you're right like they actually don't care about us and then they wanted to do that because they released their dei plan Uh, like the same week that they wanted to meet with us. So they basically like wanted to meet with us in order to sort of like show that they did because that's been the question that the public has been asking, like, have you met with them? Have you met with them? And we've just sort of been like, in order to meet with y'all, we need just certain certain demands met to even just meet just so that we can protect our safety. Like we cannot trust you. There's a lot of people that we can't trust. I think somebody was talking about just being just even the capacity, mental capacity, it takes to think if you can trust somebody or not, or if it's a good move, it's a lot. Um, So I don't we when we kind of talked about it as a group, and we're like, honestly, we don't need to meet with them, we've given them everything that there is to give, like, what is a meeting going to do at this point when they have it? And to be honest, half of their DEI plan, they stole from our list of demands anyway. So it's like, y'all do what you want. Um, So I feel like No Neutral Alliance is in a place where we really just want to continue to be this malleable thing, right? Like, what now do we want to do? How do we want to address certain issues? Do we want to work super closely with the institution? Or do we want to focus most of our time on creating our own? Because FUBU is right. Like, FUBU is a great option. FUBU allows you to have a level of control. FUBU allows you to feel whole. It allows you to be as experimental and as free thinking as you would like. And I think I'm in a place right now where I want to take all of these theories and put them into practice. And I think that's maybe the really beautiful thing about this work as well is that it's intergenerational. So all of the things that we've done, we've just taken from people who've done it before us. And also the pain is intergenerational. My experiences are intergenerational. It's not unique to me. Uh, There's people who are 20, 30, however many years older than me, who can literally be like, oh, well, you think, let me tell you about what happened when I was there, right? Um, So I feel like we're in a place where we're like, okay, let's give ourselves the space and time and step away from the urgency because when talking with them directly there's like a sense of urgency they want so much in such a short amount of time that and this is what museums fall victim to all the time especially SFMOMA. moma that's so large they don't have enough time and space but they're trying to like fill out this complete exhibition calendar right they're trying to like throw in all these exhibitions but there's no space and time to really give them the thought that they deserve so what ends up happening is they just kind of fall into the same sort of like factory like settings from like the educational programming to the marketing to the this to the that because there's no time and space to fully give them what they deserve Um, so I think we're trying to like step away from that narrative and create a space for ourselves where we can really just like slow down and maybe just like have more time again to just discuss where it is that we want to go. But shout out to the groups like Momo, who I think were really integral, of course, in like the resignation of Gary Garls, who was like their senior most curator at the museum. That was huge. Um, and all the other groups and people who are doing other stuff. But I feel like what I envision for No Neutral Alliance is just like the continuation of this very like experimental black led workers first space that is able to come up with concepts and experiment, try them out, hypothesize, do it again, but put our theories into practice. Yeah. (sighs)
2: Well, I know we have to go but just, I want oh, to yeah. say one thing when COVID hit the museum director who's no longer there said artists need us we need to do things for them they need us they need us and I just I feel like I was laughing when she said that because I was like no they don't need us we need them and I just hope that is something that each artist, arts administrator, worker, whether it's like curator, a public programming, visitor services person, security person
0: remembers is that actually
2: they need us. They need
3: us.
0: Right, I know, and we need all of you. I mean, the work that you guys have done, and I really appreciate you taking the time and kind of, I hope that everyone who is working at a museum can listen to this conversation because like truly, it is vital that things change in these industries. And I think that, you know, part of the urgency is they can't wait to be done with this. You know, like, they can't wait. They're looking for an off-ramp every day, you know, to this conversation. Like, oh, okay, demand's met, good. Can we stop talking about race? And I think that, like, that, that is, I think, what animates a lot of this response is like, okay, fine, but let's get it over with. It's like, this is a fundamental paradigm shift in the way we even think of, this institution, and what it needs to do, and who it needs to serve, and who uh, inhabits it. Um, And I think that that is, must be very daunting for a racist curator, (laughs) you know, but we here, and we ain't going nowhere. So, and with people like you at the forefront of this, I think that, like, so many other people who maybe would have been reluctant to add their voice to this, or to put something at stake, um, will. And so, I'm just very uh, touched, and uh, impressed and really grateful to have all of you guys here. I'm having this conversation to to Faith and Jova and Taylor. Uh, keep it up, because honestly, not many people have it in them the way you guys do. And I think that the success of the movements you've begun is uh, kind of proof of that. So, take care and be safe. That's the other thing. Take care of yourselves, because this is like. I mean, I feel like I'm going to get off this call and just be like, oh, my God, (laughs) like so much change needs to happen. And as heartened as I am by all three of you. uh, And I love the fact that now you guys can kind of rely upon each other, hopefully um, interpersonally. But I hope you make space and time for yourself because, you know, this shit, uh, it it really weighs on you. And it like it actually does drain your life, literally. And in a time where like our life is so imperiled and we don't know what the fuck is happening, um, I hope that you guys put yourselves first. You know, someone's got to, and I guess it's got to be you. So take those naps. (laughs) Exactly, take those naps. Indeed, (laughs) (laughs) give your naps. Take one now. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Um,
3: thank
2: you. you.
0: Yeah, love all of you and uh, stay safe. Yeah. Yeah. Bye. Bye.
3: So nice meeting you all.